0: From 1924 to 1930, Detroit's Holly Brothers Carburetor Company sponsored one of the nation's strongest soccer clubs. During its tenure, the Holly Carburetors proved themselves a steady power in Detroit and Midwest soccer. They regularly contended for the National Challenge Open Cup.
1: Argentina plays France today in the 2022 World Cup Final. The U.S. team bowed out on December 3rd when they went down 3-1 to the Netherlands. But soccer, it turns out, actually has a long history in the United States, thanks to its popularity among immigrant workers from European countries. From 1927 to 1935, the United States Communist Party, or CPUSA, established the Labor Sport Union, a coalition of worker athletic clubs, primarily located in the urban Northeast and Midwest. The CPUSA's 1925 Sport Manifesto emphasized that sports should be used as a medium for class struggle and even to create, quote, proletarian fighting units against militarism and fascism, unquote. One of their successful sporting accomplishments was the Workers' Soccer Association, or WSA which organized leagues in New York City, Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, Philadelphia, and Pittsburgh. This communist soccer league played two seasons per year and competed for city, regional, and national championships. On today's show, Gabe Logan recounts the history of the Workers' Soccer Association and explains an overlooked aspect of U.S. soccer the intersected political ideology Labor and athletics. And on Labor History in Two.
2: The year was 1951. That was the day New York City was struck by the Great Bagel Famine.
1: I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today.
0: Gabe Logan is in the history department at Northern Michigan University, and he's done, in my mind, an interesting kind of of preparation for himself as a scholar, because of the fact that he mixes sport history on the one side with immigration history on the other. Now, uh, upon reflection, this is not all that strange, frankly, because immigrants are the ones who really did bring soccer to the United States. Uh, and the intersection continues because the fact that really you end up uh, right in the heart of looking at working class communities and looking uh, at the, the labor movement and other social movements connected to soccer. I'm John Beck, and with Kurt Dewhurst, uh, we uh, co-direct our daily work at Daily Lives. So thank you for coming, Gabe, and uh, take it away. So this began with two research interests of mine, early United States soccer and the labor sport union, which was the athletic arm of this party. Uh, During the 1920s, the so-called Golden Age of sport, these forces collided. Uh, Most of you are familiar with uh, Babe Ruth, Red Grange, Jack Dempsey. Well, United States soccer at this time also experienced a Golden Age. Um, This included professional leagues in the Northeast, St. Louis, Chicago, and for this paper's purpose, Detroit. At the same time, the labor sport union sought to encourage athletics for all, not just the college players, not just the elite members of the athletic clubs or the religious organizations such as the CYO or the YMCA. So there's the background. Uh, this paternalism and sport. In Detroit, the best soccer teams organized around ethnic fraternities or the workplace. This paper looks at what I consider in the late best teams in Detroit, the Holly Carburetors, uh, named after that factory that sponsored the team, and how the workers took over a company team and made it into a regional and to a degree a national power. And then finally, the last part, the Labor Sport Union. In the late 1920s, the Labor Sport Union organized in Detroit as well. In addition to baseball, gymnastics, basketball, track and field, the communists also organized a vibrant city and regional soccer league. So all these forces collided in the 1930s and 1930 when Detroit entered the Great Depression. From 1924 to 1930, Detroit's Holly Brothers Carburetor Company sponsored one of the nation's strongest soccer clubs. During its tenure, the Holly Carburetors proved themselves a steady power in Detroit and Midwest soccer. They regularly contended for the National Challenge Open Cup emblematic of the nation's top soccer team and they were charter members of Detroit and later the Midwest professional soccer circuit. The team's lineup featured an international all-star aggregate that played other regional sides and international visitors to the city. Simultaneously Detroit also took its place among the nation's foremost soccer regions. It maintained a vibrant soccer circuit that featured professional semi-professional, amateur, junior, and school teams. Detroit provided personnel to the United States Football Association, the nation's ruling soccer body. Specifically, Armstrong Patterson, the USFA president from 1928 to 1932, hailed from the Motor City. In this capacity, Armstrong aligned FIFA international policy with domestic play, improved the final word in national soccer disputes. Despite Holly's soccer successes in Detroit's national soccer games, the team became a casualty to the Great Depression's political and economic battles that rocked Detroit and the nation. Industrial sponsorship collapsed. Additionally, a rival alliance, the Worker's Soccer Association, affiliated with the United States Communist Party, developed a strong soccer presence in the city, which caused internal friction and political infighting, this presentation outlines the Holly Carburetors and Detroit Soccer during the Roaring Twenties. It explains how Detroit Soccer rose to national prominence, both in leadership and as a contender for national championships. It explains how the period's economic unrest, coupled with Detroit's labor traditions, clashed with a conservative soccer federation and forced the Hollies to fold, thus impeding Detroit Soccer decades. Along with much of the nation, Detroit commenced playing association football or soccer during the late 1800s. Four teams organized the Detroit Soccer League in 1890. Most of these players were British expats. They played friendlies against each other and their Ontario neighbors. By 1891, the Detroit Association Football Club emerged as the city's top team, Over the next several decades, Detroit developed into a respected regional soccer center. City perennial champions such as the St. Georges, the Roses, and the Packards were frequent qualifiers in regional and national tournaments. Further, Detroit's near location to Ontario ensured spirited competition and international play with their Canadian neighbors. Nearly the same time as Detroit soccer began, George and Earl Holly made impressive strides in the development of early combustion engines, motorcycles, and automobiles. Working out of their Bradford, Pennsylvania shop, the brothers earned a reputation as groundbreaking mechanical innovators. Under their banner, Holly Motor Company, the brothers won endurance races, set speed records, and designed engine-specific components. It was this last endeavor that caught the attention of Detroit's Henry Ford, who commissioned the brothers to design and build carburetors for his Model, Model T automobiles. The partnership proved lucrative and turned into lasting friendships for the early auto industrialists. In 1907, the brothers relocated their company to Detroit where they provided carburetors and ignitions to many early car companies. These automotive innovations transformed Detroit into the nation's automobile capital. By the 1920s, Detroit's auto industry helped drive its population to over 1 million residents as it grew from the nation's ninth to fourth largest city. Most of the auto companies and their subsidiaries, such as Holly Carburetors, confronted this population swell and rising labor consciousness by offering livable wages while demanding open shops to stave off unionism. This strategy initially proved successful. Labor unions remained relatively small and skill-specific. Left-wing organizations, such as Detroit's Communist Party, Made little headway beyond rhetoric as opposed to practice. Hence, despite the physical demanding and mind-numbing work, corporate paternalism, including company recreations, proliferated, proliferated in this decade. Detroit soccer reflected this city's growth. During the 1914-15 season, the city fielded 18s. Following the Great War, the number of soccer clubs increased to 18. And by the late 1920s, Detroit's adult soccer leagues featured an 18 professional circuit and over 40 clubs in the semi-professional and amateur ranks. Clearly, Detroit soccer grew with the population swell. The Holly Carburetor Company entered the Detroit sporting world in 1924. The company embraced employee recreations and likely endorsed them as corporate paternalism and to thwart unionism. Newspaper accounts indicate their baseball team commenced play in the city's auto league. A Holly basketball team took to the courts in the city's industrial league. And in August, the company financed the soccer team. The Holly Carburetors debuted as one of the 15 teams in the B division of Detroit's American League, the lowest amateur division. The team lost its initial matches, but it soon gelled and finished the first half of the season in second place, behind the German-Americans. Even more surprising was the 1925 spring season. The Hollies marched through the table and earned promotion to the A Division. Along the way, they surprisingly captured the state's Open Cup. The following season, the team continued its successes and signed additional top-scorer players that also worked at Holly. These included several Scotsmen who were knowledgeable in machine works and possessed soccer talent. They discovered a ready employer who valued both skill sets. As the team again advanced through the league, they landed one of the rising stars in the soccer world, Garrett Visser, a former Dutch Olympian. Visser's remarkable soccer journey is distinct with tenure on several significant teams of the 1920s. The Dutch lost the quarterfinals to eventual champions, Uruguay, two to one. The following year, Visser arrived in the United States where he had a short stint with Bethlehem Steel before moving on to Windsor, Canada. In late 1926, he crossed the Detroit River and took a job at Holly. He found success on Detroit's soccer fields, where he established himself as the city's top scorer and one of the Midwest's leading strikers. In 1927, the Holly's talented amateur side, along with a scoring wizard, Weiss Visser, trooped through seven matches on their way to the United States Open Cup. They defeated local semi-professional sides and professional teams from Cleveland and Chicago. It was a Cinderella story that brought unprecedented number of spectators to their games. By May, the Hollies had earned the right to represent the West against the Fall River Marksmen from the East in the National Open Cup. Sam Marks, the Massachusetts team owner, agreed to bring his team to Detroit for the championship. This marked the first of only two times the Open Cup Final occurred in the Motor City. Detroit soccer faithful did not disappoint as over 10,000 spectators crowded into the University of Detroit stadiums where the marksmen ran over the Hollies in a 7-0 thrashing. Despite the drubbing, Detroit soccer in general, and the Hollies in particular, eager look forward to the next season. The 1928-29 campaign proved another watershed to Detroit soccer. The league formally organized a professional circuit around eight teams. Each of the professional clubs had financial backing from local industries, such as the Holly Carburetors. There was also Garwood Motors, the Wood, Garwood Motors, Wood Hydraulics, the Van Wolfens, and Lansing Cougars. This last team owner, the Lansing Cougars owner, traveled to England to recruit a fully professional side. There was also the Walkerville Distillers, across the Detroit River in Ontario. The rest of the circuit featured a well-financed ethnic fraternity, such as the All-Scots, the Celtic, and Swedish Americans. The professional league contested their games in Packard Park, a first-class facility that featured enclosed grounds, a complete soccer pitch, stands, and seating. Two other seemingly unrelated events occurred in this season that would have significant ramification for the Hollies and Detroit soccer. The first was the election of Detroit's Armstrong Patterson as the UFSA president. The other was the formation of the Labor Sport Union, a communist recreation league that began in Detroit and implemented soccer as one of their sports. When Patterson took over the reins, he arguably inherited one of United States soccer's most trying calamities, the so-called Soccer War of 1928. Patterson immigrated to Detroit from Ireland. He was a leading member in Detroit soccer, a plumber by trade, and a recipient to a rather bizarre lawsuit leveled against him by a former dancer who sued Patterson for withholding affection from her and their alleged son. Patterson lost the case and the judge declared him the boy's father. The politics of Detroit soccer, the plumbing trade, and a defamation lawsuit seemingly made Patterson no one to be trifled with. When the soccer war broke out, Patterson put his foot down. The causes of the war were many, but it centered on who would control United States soccer. At this time, several East Coast American Soccer League teams sought to boycott the Open Cup. Sport entrepreneur Charles Stoneham, who owned baseball's New York Giants and soccer's New York Nationals, was no longer willing to split the Open Cup gate with the United States Soccer Association. Further, Stoneham wanted to disassociate disassociate United States soccer from the USFA and FIFA control. He envisioned an independent soccer league such as United States baseball. He convinced several other ASL teams to join him as a self-governing soccer association. Patterson disagreed with this plan and he suspended the ASL teams. He identified them as an outlaw league. The so-called Soccer War waged on for another year to the detriment of confused fans, various named organizations, and an overall weakened professional soccer circuit. That same year, the Communist Party formed the Worker's Soccer Association, which organized leagues in several cities, including Detroit. Unlike the Communist Factory Organization efforts, the Worker's Soccer Association proved moderately successful. By 1929, Detroit had one of the largest communist leagues with 12 teams. They played outside the United States Soccer Association, but often competed with them in regional tournaments and in off-season friendlies. As the American Soccer League and the Workers' Soccer Association sought independence and legitimacy, Detroit soccer continued to experience success. In 1928-29 season, the USFA jointly awarded Detroit Swedish Americans and Fall River Hudson's Essex, co-amateur champions as the last two undefeated teams in an unplayed final championship. The Hollies advanced to the Open Cup semifinals before bowing out to St. Louis. The city's professional circuit concluded a thrilling three-way tie for first place that necessitated a championship series. And 15,000 spectators watched a Detroit All-Star selection, which featured several Holly players, hold the touring Glasgow Rangers to a 1-1 tie. On the eve of the Great Depression, Midwest soccer organized a professional soccer circuit. Six Midwest clubs from Chicago, Cleveland, and Detroit formed the Midwest Professional Soccer League. The Alliance contested for the Triner Cup, procured United States Soccer Association and FIFA recognition, and implemented the radical idea of two substitutions per match. They kicked off in September 1929, nearly the same time the East Coast Soccer War approached a conclusion. President Patterson and the USFA leadership convinced FIFA to disbar any British player who wanted to return home, but had played for an outlawed ASL club. Additionally, foreign clubs touring the United States were not allowed to play against outlaw. Uh, soccer teams. And most damning was the exodus of players from the outlaw teams to those clubs that were recognized by United States soccer, including the new professional circuit in the Midwest and the Hollies. Bowing to these pressures and player drains, the ASL conceded authority to United States soccer, paid their fines, and rejoined the soccer body. President Patterson seemingly won the war. With peace at hand in the East, Detroit, Chicago, and Cleveland commenced a spirited season. The Hollies set a strong pace, going nearly undefeated. Further, the other clubs stayed close on their heels, demonstrating parity and competition. The first first half final came down to the Chicago Carpenters and Holly, which the Carpenters won. The six teams next played a single elimination tournament the following spring. However, the Great Depression began to sow economic hardships in the league and discord in the region. For example, the owners of Packard Park venue upped the rent, which necessitated playing doubleheaders at the facility. By 1929, Holly could barely afford to pay these and petitioned their Open Cup draw in Pittsburgh to hold the game in the Steel City rather than pay for the Pennsylvania team to travel to Detroit. Likewise, Detroit's economic dependence on the automobile meant that the city entered the depression almost immediately since the luxury of car ownership quickly went away. Tens of thousands of workers found themselves unemployed. Correspondingly, discretionary income for soccer games became an indulgent that kept spectators away. In addition, the economic collapse caused many to reconsider the Communist Party's political platform and by extension, the athletic offerings of the Workers' Soccer Association. These forces converged during the 1930 Spring Campaign. The Hollies, now managed by Visser, developed a strong team that depended on an array of former British expats. On another remarkable Open Cup run, they defeated St. Louis Ben Millers, the rival Detroit Football Club, Pittsburgh's Pierpoint Motors, and the Chicago Bricklayers, before losing the Western Open Cup final to Cleveland Brule Insurance Team. Nonplus, the Hollies rebounded by capturing Michigan's Open Cup championship over the Swedish American. That same spring, the communist-backed Workers' Soccer Association selected Detroit as the host for their inaugural soccer championship. The final featured a Rockford, Illinois team against a New York City side. The Detroit Workers' Soccer Association approached Visser and asked to rent Packard Park, as the Hollies had lease rights to the season. Undoubtedly feeling the financial pinch of the depression, Visser agreed and likely saw as an opportunity to help defer operating costs. The communist organizers set their game championship for July 7th, 1930. Coincidentally, the Hollies' final game fell on the same day. The other remaining undefeated team in the Midwest Professional Tournament was Hollies' nemesis Cleveland Brule. The Ohioans and Holly agreed to play the final after the workers' soccer game at Packer Park. The United States soccer leadership was in town for their annual meeting and were in attendance. However, President Patterson, an avowed anti-communist had barred the communists from associating with United States soccer, seeing them as a threat to domestic soccer. He employed the tools that had worked with the ASL in the soccer war and declared is the Communist Soccer League and Outlaw League. On the day of the Brule-Holly Championship, the WSA game between Rockford and New York ran late. Patterson became enraged when he discovered the communists playing in Packard Park and their fans distributing propaganda that denounced bourgeois sport in general and the United States Soccer Federation in particular. He blamed Visser and the Hollies for allowing the communists game to take place and charged them with aiding and abetting the enemy. The verbal lashing and the talented Brule side seemingly dispirited the Hollies who lost the championship 2-0. Over the following weeks, matters went from bad to worse. Patterson banned Holly and Visser from the United States Soccer Association and the Detroit leagues. By August, the Midwest Professional League declared itself financially insolvent and ceased operations. Detroit's Amateur American League took over Packard Park and used the venue for double and even triple-headed, triple-header headed soccer matches. In retrospect, Patterson and the United States Soccer Association overreacted. <clears throat> the Hollies were one of the top teams in the Midwest, and banning them simply diluted the talent of their players, as many of them now joined other Detroit teams in the amateur leagues or simply moved on. The following year, Patterson lifted Vesser's suspension. He eventually returned to the game as a player for Detroit Swedish-Americans, but he never again managed a professional workers team as he did with the Hollies. The Communist League collapsed in 1935 when Moscow ordered the Red Sport International to make common cause with other left-wing groups. In keeping with the dictate, the Communist Leagues either joined worker union teams in the amateur ranks, were simply folded. Detroit soccer never recovered from the heights reached with the Hollies. The closest the city came was in 1941 when the Detroit Packards reached the Open Cup Finals but lost to the Pawtucket Football Club. Detroit labor went on to organize itself most famously with the Ford Hunger Marches and the Flint sit-down strike. General Motors paved over Packard Park Stadium. It is now under their soon-to-be defunct Hamtramck plant. Despite Detroit's 1920s soccer potential, the expulsion of the Hollies created a soccer void that is yet to be filled. The city still awaits its first Open Cup soccer champion.
1: Gabe Logan with red jerseys in Detroit, soccer and industrial workers, 1926 to 1930.
2: I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1951. That was the day New York City was struck by the Great Bagel Famine. 300 members across 32 bakeries of the Bagel Bakers of America Local 338 walked off the job over wages and working conditions. Morris Siegel, business agent for the local, stated that the Bakers Association had been lax in living up to the welfare fund payments and sanitary provisions of the contract. The bagel bakers produced 1.2 million bagels weekly for New York City consumers. The Wisconsin Jewish Chronicle noted, quote, the only ones welcoming this respite are the salmon. Diners, delicatessens, and Teamster delivery drivers were all rocked by the strike, which lasted for six weeks. The two sides were so deadlocked that a mediator who had effectively settled a smoked salmon dispute three years earlier was brought in to help settle the conflict. The Bagel Bakers won a $3 a day wage increase and were ready to return to work. But the Teamsters would not begin deliveries until they were paid for lost wages due to the lack of deliveries made during the strike. The Bagel Bakers would engage in job actions effectively over the course of the next 15 years until they too suffered the fate of many an industrial worker that of automation their labor would eventually be replaced by labor-saving bagel making machines by the late
0: 1960s the bagel baker's local 338 was a union that was based in new york state and they set the minimum wages of the yiddish bagel bakeries and controlled all of the stages from the flour sack to the plate but like the
2: railroad to the canal. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2.
1: That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Special thanks this week to John Beck and our daily lives Brown Bag Series, sponsored by by the Michigan State University School of Human Resources and Labor Relations and the MSU Museum, which sponsored today's talk, Red Jerseys in Detroit, Soccer and Industrial Workers, 1926 to 1930 by Gabe Logan. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Our music today was the official theme song of this year's World Cup. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pazak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, keep making history, and see you next time.